On this week's edition of New York Now, a new poll on this year's elections in New York. Then, control of the state Senate is up for grabs. We'll talk about it. And later, record tourism in the Adirondacks has created new challenges. We'll take you there. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. We are now less than six weeks out from this year's elections, and a new poll has Democrats ahead in races statewide, like this year's elections for U.S. Senate and governor. Governor Kathy Hochul has a 17-point lead over Congressman Lee Zeldin, according to the poll, though Zeldin has said internal polling shows a tighter race. But one blind spot for Hochul is with independent voters. Zeldin has a two-point lead there and has more support upstate. Hochul responded to that point on Wednesday. Certainly independent voters, when the election gets closer, will be very focused on the extreme contrast between two individuals and who is uh, prepared to lead this state into this post-pandemic era. And that person, I believe they'll conclude, is myself, based on my experience. And a lot more in this week's poll. Let's get into it with Steve Greenberg from the Siena Research Institute. Steve, thank you. Great to be with you. So what does this tell us about Kathy Hochul versus Lee Zeldin head-to-head? I just mentioned independent voters. Lee has a two-point advantage there. But is this race as tight as it usually is around this time for a Democrat versus a Republican in New York? Well, we have to keep it in perspective. New York is a solidly blue state with more than twice as many Democrats as Republicans. So what we normally see at this time of year, a month, six weeks out from an election, is the Democrats having a, a sizable lead. In this case, not only in the governor's race, where Hochul has a 17-point lead over Zeldin right now, but in the other three statewide races, we see Democrats having leads between 16 and 23 points. Mm -hmm. um, so what the Republican has to do, what Zeldin really has to do, is he's got to do a better job with independence. He can't just win independence by two or three points. He's got to win independence big if he wants to be competitive in a state like New York. And win Democrats, too. I mean, you really have to bring people over to your side of the aisle in a race like this. It, I, have we seen anybody make up this much ground with this short amount of time before Election Day in recent history? It's tough to do, and it's tough for a Republican. It's why no Republican has won in New York in two decades since George Pataki won his third term as governor in 2002. You know, and Zeldin has a, another problem, which is uh, Republicans. Right now, he's got the support of 77 percent of Republicans. 17 mm. percent uh, of Republicans say they're voting for Hochul. Last month, back in August, or sh I should say back in August, uh, in the first Siena poll here, Zeldin had the support of 84% of Republicans. So he's right. losing Republicans, he's not winning enough among independents, and he's not picking off Democrats. I, I wonder why that, do you have any insight on why that is? I, I mean, it's just such a strange set of numbers. <laughs> well, you know, what we also see here is the traditional uh, gender gap. Yeah. Um, men are basically break even. They, uh, they support Hochul by a, a handful of points, but women, better than two to one, 61 to 29 percent say they're with Hochul. So in a lot of ways, this is the traditional race we have seen over the last three gubernatorial elections, the major difference being that there's nobody named Cuomo on the ballot. Yeah. 
Is there any anything strange about the other statewide races in terms of the gaps there? It seems like it's all pretty pretty usual where we would be at this point. Yeah, it really is, and that's because we have three incumbent Democrats who are running for re-election, and their three Republican opponents are largely unknown to the vast majority of voters. Uh, so, for example, Joe Pinion, who's running against Chuck Schumer, 88% of voters have never heard of him or don't have an opinion about him. Same for uh, Paul Rodriguez, who's running against Tom DiNapoli for state controller. Mm -hmm. And same for Michael Henry. 92% uh, of voters have never heard or don't know enough about Michael Henry, who's running against uh, Letitia James for attorney general to have an opinion. So now what, what we're seeing is sort of a lackluster New York campaign at the statewide level where the Democrats are in control and the Republicans are trying to sneak in but losing time. You know, meanwhile, I found something very interesting about the issues that voters are now finding important. So later in the poll, um, you ask voters what their big issue is in determining their vote in November. And now we see most voters are talking about the economy. And crime seems to have gone down a little bit. I found that really interesting. Absolutely. Look, in the spring, uh, crime was far and away the number one issue that voters were talking about. Now, when we ask voters the top issue that's going to determine how they vote in November, and then the second issue, um, what we find is half of voters, half, said economic issues is one of their top issues. 30% said it is the top issue. Coming in second now, threats to democracy. Uh, a third of voters say it's one of their top two priorities. 22% say it's their top priority. Crime has dropped down now to third. And then you have your second-tier issues that are important to segments of the electorate, but not overall, and that's gun policy, abortion, health care. Important to a group of voters, but not necessarily a large group of voters. And how are we defining threats to democracy? I know that might mean different things to different people. It absolutely does, and we're not defining it. What we oh. ask voters is, is that an important issue for you? And so, interestingly, what we see is 35% of Democrats say it's one of their top two issues. 34% of Republicans say it's one of their top uh, two issues. So I think Republicans and Democrats probably come at this from a different point of view. But what is interesting is that you have a sizable number of Republicans, Democrats, and independents who are concerned about threats to the country's democracy. That's fascinating. That is really interesting. And uh, if we see a question like that, again, I'd be very interested to see the answer in a couple of years. Um, we are out of time, unfortunately. This is a great poll. Steve Greenberg from the Siena Research Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, staying now with politics and the state Senate. When Democrats took control of the Senate four years ago, New York politics changed. See, before that, Republicans had been in control of the state Senate for decades. There was a short stint in 2008 when Democrats were briefly in control, but for the most part, the state Senate was in the hands of Republicans. And at the time, they saw themselves as a check on the Democrats, who've had a tight grip over the state assembly for as long as anyone can remember. But this year, Republicans think they could take back the state Senate. They would need to win 12 seats in November for that to happen. So for more on that, I spoke with State Senator Pam Helming, who chairs the State Senate Republican Campaign Committee in New York. Senator Pam Helming, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. So we are about five weeks out from Election Day. Tell me first, how are you feeling in general as you're, uh, you know, managing these races across the state? Yeah, so, 
you know, in general, I'm feeling absolutely fantastic about the races. But before we get into the races, I do have to acknowledge I am feeling a little down today after the Bills lost yesterday. Mm. I think the Bills played an outstanding game and they should have pulled it off, but uh, still cheering for them. I know they're going to do well overall this season. Yeah, we, we can never give up on the Bills in New York because as we know as New Yorkers, the Bills never give up on us. So always good to keep them in mind. So looking at these races, you know, I, I'm curious about how you how you look at this from a statewide perspective, because, you know, a race on Long Island is very different from a race in Buffalo. But also you have these kind of overarching themes to politics right now in New York. So as you're running these candidates across the state, what is your overall message to voters? What's your pitch to them as they head to the polls in November? Dan, as I'm out talking to our candidates, to our incumbents, and also like I'm running myself, so I'm going door to door, out meeting a lot of people. And, and the feeling that I have is this is an extremely exciting time for our party. You know, people out there have gotten to see now there's, we've had one party rule for a number of years in Albany. And I'm sure you've heard the topics that we're hearing about has to do with um, safe neighborhoods and supporting our law enforcement, not promoting this message of defaming and defunding the police. We're hearing a lot about affordability and cost of living, gas, utility, food costs are skyrocketing and our families need help and assistance and they need it now. So I think the, the energy, the excitement is uh, for the Republicans, whether I'm talking to you know soft Democrats, those who aren't registered to a party, Republicans, conservatives, they're ready for change. So your goal at the end of all of this, at the end of the November election, is to gain a majority in the state Senate, which you lost in the 2018 elections to Democrats, which, have you, as you said, have controlled both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office since then. So as you're looking at what you could do starting in January, say you did win a majority, do you have any sense of what you could do to address those issues? I'm sure people are looking for answers from your candidates across the state and want to make sure that if they elect them, that you're going to do the things that you say that you're going to do. Absolutely. Very good question. So on the first issue, safe neighborhoods and communities, uh, the Republicans, we have a plan in place. You can check it out on our Senate Republican campaign committee website. But it involves, as I said, standing up for our law enforcement, not passing bills that are or creating policy that's pro-criminal. And it's also doing more to support mental and behavioral health services, actually doing more on the ground. Uh, doing more preventative outreach services on affordability and cost of living. We have a tremendous detailed plan, again, that you can view on our website at the Senate Republicans Campaign Committee. It addresses everything from capping state spending to doing more to reduce utility costs. It's all-encompassing, talks about providing broad-based tax relief for families and businesses. So I think we we have a great message, a strong message. Our, can our candidates are doing a great job delivering that message. And like I said, I'm very, very excited. Now, I think it's fair to say that Democrats are really pushing two issues at the polls right now, aside from what you've talked about, abortion and guns after the controversial Supreme Court rulings in June. For a voter's perspective, what would Republicans do if you were to regain the majority in January? What would you do in terms of abortion rights and gun control laws? The state has just recently passed some new abortion laws and gun control laws. Would you do anything to roll them back? So on the firearms legislation, I think we're going to see court cases that will resolve any questions that remain about the unconstitutionality of some of the recent legislation that was passed. I mean, the firearms legislation was just pushed through 
Um, and we're seeing the results of, you know, legislation that has so much gray area. And for me personally, the way a law is written, the language that's used, it matters. Right now, there's a lot of question about, uh, for instance, high school shooting sports teams, historical reenactments. Are they allowed to use firearms? Are they not? I've personally reached out to the governor through letters, through phone calls and said, can you point to where in the law that this is clarified? And they can't. So I think um, that will be settled out through the court. On the issue of abortion, this is an issue that invokes a lot of passion, regardless of which side of the issue you're on. But the decision by the Supreme Court, it really, in my opinion, changes nothing here in New York State. New York State had law that predated Roe v. Wade. So to me, it's frustrating when I see some of my Senate Democratic colleagues putting these like scary ads up on TV or in, in the media saying that, you know, this is an issue. I totally disagree with it. It's not. It's scare tactics. It's fear mongering from the Democrats. And most importantly, it's a way for them to avoid the real issues that are impacting individuals, families and businesses across the state. The issues that we need to address, the affordability, the spike in crime, it's horrendous. And that's the change that our Senate Republican candidates will deliver. You know, Democrats at the same time will say the same thing about your party using scare tactics when you talk about things like the rise in crime in New York. How do you respond to that? Dan, look at the facts and look at the figures when it comes to rising crime. Again, I pointed out Rochester. Last year, per capita, the homicides in Rochester exceeded those of Chicago. And this year, it's so sad. They're going to break that record. You know how many families' lives have been destroyed because of these homicides, because of these violent criminal acts? And it's not just Rochester. Look at New York City, where people are running around like crazy people with hatchets, uh, cutting people up, pushing people in front of subway cars. It's I truly believe in my heart and in my soul that we have created this environment in New York State where we're pro-criminal. Look at the policies that have been enacted by the Democrats. It's just not the changes to bail and discovery. It's the HALT Act, less, less is more. And they're still pushing. They're not done. They want geriatric parole and so much. The Senate Republicans, we stand for accountability. We want to see more enforcement of our laws. We want people to be held accountable for their actions. And you know what? That includes politicians as well. The corruption is another issue that I hear about when I'm at the doors and that I know my candidates are hearing about as well. It's got to stop. People have to be held accountable for their actions. Now, there's a lot on your plate with all of these issues, and I imagine your strategy across the state is going to be different, as we said at the start, depending on where you are. So can you tell me where you're focused in terms of these tight races? Usually we see Long Island as a really competitive place in terms of uh, state Senate races. Is that where you're focusing this year, or where are you looking to really pick up some of these seats? Long Island is definitely one of our focus areas. We are doing extremely well there. We have very, very qualified candidates candidates who, look, as a proud mother and grandmother myself, I have to say being a mother is one of the toughest jobs. We have women who are also mothers, small business owners. We have people who have worked for the NYPD, so this broad-based experience, who are really, they're doing everything they need to do to be successful. They're out raising funding. They are out knocking on doors, meeting with people. 
And, you know, we saw, I think it sent a, a message when Todd Kaminsky didn't run, when John Brooks was on the fence about running. They, they know the writing's on the wall. We saw it in the elections last fall in Long Island that people are fed up. And in Long Island, it's really they're fed up with um, the pro-criminal attitude of so many politicians. And they're also fed up. They're, they're concerned about congestion pricing. They want school choice. And, and they're, they're concerned about the preservation of their constitutional freedoms. All right. Well, we will be watching to see how it all shakes out in November. State Senator Pam Helming, the chair of the State Senate Republican Campaign Committee. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. So we'll see how control of the state Senate shakes out in November. But taking a trip now up to the Adirondacks, New York's high peaks saw record numbers of visitors during the pandemic. And it's not really a huge surprise. Those numbers have been going up for years now. But that's brought some unique challenges to the area, both for residents and business owners. And now the state is looking for solutions. Reporter Alexis Young has that story. Over six million acres and thousands of years, the forever wild Adirondacks were originally home to the Mohawk, Oneida, and Mohican tribes. It then became battlegrounds of old and new worlds. And now, the mountains are an attraction for local nature enthusiasts and tourists. The Adirondacks have served many purposes over centuries, and trails were forged to meet those needs. Mountain trails weren't always designed to honor nature or the life it nurtured. Some have degraded the surrounding wilderness, and some of those trail designs are only just now being addressed. For Peter Bauer, executive director of environmental group Protect the Adirondacks, he says mountain trail design is critical for conservation. A lot of the trails that we have were built right after the Civil War. You know, the whole, the, the whole focus was how can we get to the top of the mountain as quickly as possible. So these trails just went straight up the mountainside. And in many places, you know, they water, you know, the, the trails would wash out because it changed the hydrology of the side of the mountain because these trails just became stream channels. They became heavily eroded because they were on such steep, steep surfaces. Bauer and his group worked to preserve and protect the Adirondacks, its wildlife, wild lands, and the interests of the surrounding communities. One of their recent initiatives focused on the design and creation of sustainable forest trails that gradually elevate hikers into the peaks of the Adirondacks. What we found is generally anything over 10% is really hard for soils to adhere to. And these areas are very prone to erosion during rainstorms, rocks become loose, uh, roots become loose, and it creates problems for the long-term management and the long-term maintenance of a trail because they simply wear out quicker with the wear and tear that we see just by natural weathering with rainstorms, spring, fall, and rainstorms really all year round, but then with ice and snow in the winter months. Outside of their regular conservation work, Bauer says he's now working to get trail crew jobs into the civil service system. That would incentivize skilled trail designers to come to the Adirondacks with competitive salaries and benefits. We have 2,000 miles of trails across the forest preserve that need much greater investment and need a much higher level of maintenance and management than they're currently receiving. One of the things we've advocated for is that 
our state agency, the Department of Environmental Conservation, has to get back into the trail building business. They've basically been out of the trail building business. Our rangers are so busy doing search and rescue and managing public use that the rangers don't do trail work anymore. The Adirondacks is known for its babbling brooks, thick vegetation, and awe-inspiring views. The thousands of miles of acreage have acted as a reprieve from both rural and city life. Yet, discussions around overuse, sustainable recreation, and underinvestment have been happening for almost as long. The discussion saw its resurgence during the pandemic, when 12 million people flooded the area between 2020 and 2021. Though patronage isn't quite that high, the impacts of the 12 million can be felt by the flora, the wildlife, and the people of Keene and Keene Valley. Heather Lasher-Coffin has lived in Keene for 13 years, and she's owned East Branch Organics with her husband for many of them. Though she hasn't hiked all 46 peaks just yet, she's no stranger to the high peaks or how busy they can become. You know, overcrowding on the trails is a problem. I live right next to a very busy trailhead, the Garden Trailhead, um, and one of the one of the routes was recently closed down in the last few years. So because of that, I'm seeing a lot of erosion and overcrowding on the, on some of the trails that are a little overutilized. As a business owner, high traffic on trails could sound like a good thing with the prospect of new faces and new business, especially in a rural part of New York. But business owners and local residents now face a new challenge, with more traffic, a shortage in housing. Owner of the Mountaineer in Keene Valley, near Keene, Chris Wise has had to navigate staffing in a town where the housing market is shrinking, replaced by short-term rentals and vacation spots. Um, housing is an issue nationally, obviously on a lot of different levels, but particularly in, in outdoor destinations and resort towns, um, finding, um, finding young staff that um, can afford to live in the area and take jobs like the ones we offer uh, as a mountaineer. Um, yeah, that is, a, that is a major issue. In March, Lake Placid, about 14 miles from Keene, announced a six-month pause on short-term rentals, including those found on apps like Airbnb and Verbo. The pause was lifted in September, but discussions around permit regulations continue. Keene hasn't followed in Lake Placid's footsteps, but Leisure Coffin with East Branch Organics feels the same impact of the housing crisis as Chris Wise. I think the whole area is really catered, likes to cater towards making sure our um, tourists are happy and comfortable, have lots to do. So I think if we put that kind of same energy that we've put, you know, into welcoming people from other places into housing, then a lot of these problems would probably be fixed. And then people would have a, a way to stay here because a lot of, a lot of times people can't stay. There are upsides to more interest in the Adirondacks. New York already bills it as a national treasure, tucked away in the state's northern region. The state wants people to come visit. But Basil Sagos, commissioner of the State Department of Environmental Conservation, says there has to be a balance between recreation and conservation. The overuse, uh, in some ways, that's a, that's a good problem to have because it, it shows that there's a high level of interest in in uh, in people wanting to, to, to get outdoors and experience all that it has to offer. Um, but of course, you know, that, that, that kind of use has to be sustainable. 
Segal says overcrowding remains a concern in the high peaks, with more traffic than usual in the last five years. The DEC is now working on strategies for mitigation, he says, with the goal of benefiting both visitors and locals in the long term. Segal says if the landscape of the Adirondacks is maintained... We're going to want to come back to it. And that generates great economic activity for the villages and towns that uh, that snake through the, the, the landscape and, and really serve as the backbone of the upstate economy. A big way they've tried to do that is through a new reservation pilot system for some of the most popular high peaks. Hikers now have to reserve a spot ahead of time to park near those trails. That's helped cut down on jam-packed parking lots and crowded trails, according to DEC Deputy Commissioner Katie Patronis. We are in the second year right now of our um, reservation system, pilot reservation system at the Adirondack um, Mountain Reserve. And when we started that, um, you know, we really heard from a lot of community members that this was going to be really important and impactful to them. So we went there and, and we met with the town of Keene and we met with the public and we listened. That's a great system for tourists, says Peter Bauer from Protect the Adirondacks. But it can also be a headache for locals, he says, who live here for the region's beauty but can't enjoy it on a whim. It's cut public use in half as far as the number of people who have gone in through the Adirondack Mountain Reserve. The number of people who've used that trailhead, it's dropped from about 30,000 to 15,000. So that's one of the realities of the reservation system. A lot of this will also grow from state spending on conservation efforts, which was up in last year's budget. The state legislature and Governor Kathy Hochul agreed to $400 million for the state's Environmental Protection Fund, an increase of $100 million. And $8 million of that will go toward a special project to improve safety and address overuse. But experts say maintaining the Adirondacks and its beauty will take work from everyone, from the community to the state and more. With any luck, solutions are just up the trail. In the Adirondacks, for New York Now, Alexis Young. And it's the perfect time to go up and see the high peaks for some fall foliage, but keep all that in mind for your visit. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.